There's a lovely pile of questions this evening, and um, we could be here for a very long time, <laughs> which is good. I'm happy about that. But before addressing any questions, I did want to flag up the fact that um, we only have one more day of retreat together. I'm not sure whether you've allowed your mind to start fantasizing um, past tomorrow yet. But if you have, I just want to uh, remind us all again that uh, when we have fantasies about the future, then they're that. It's just fantasies about the future. You know, we can, here we are, there's this nice gathering of, of people and this nice place with this great opportunity. And we can be missing it. Uh, 24 hours from now, um, you know, we'll be talking about winding up. Uh, tomorrow night's Friday night, this Saturday morning we're packing, right? So we could allow the mind to be thinking about what am I going to do, what's going to happen when I get home, and you know, I meet my partner or go back to work. And if we're not alert, then... What happens? We create a world that's uh, not necessarily very pleasant to be in. And the, uh, the thing to do is just to be aware that we've done that. We've created that world. That's, that's what I, I want to mention. We've created the world and uh, we're responsible for it. But the good news is we don't have to do that. Right here and now we can realize that any thought, image, idea, feeling that arises in association with those ideas about the future is all perfectly valid. It's all absolutely just what it is. Right here and now, it's fantasies. It's, it's flickerings. It's, it's electrons firing off in our wetware. And, um, if we don't remember that, well, then we believe that it's something more than that. Yeah. And, and, and let's be aware that this is how most people are getting around. This is how most people are getting around to these virtual worlds. And then you get a kind of a collective virtual world uh, full of all sorts of desires and fears and complexities and so on and problems that have to be solved. And Well, we don't have to do that. And in fact, as Buddhists, we realize that, um, well, we're not, we're, we're not interested in doing that. You know, there's no, we know there's no freedom in that. But I just want to re remind us all, as, as we approach the ending of the retreat, that, that uh, the idea of the retreat ending is an idea. It's, it's, it's not the end of the retreat. You know, it's like, it's like the idea of tomorrow's meal. I mean, that idea is really incredibly boring, isn't it? As an idea, I mean, 
It's completely worthless. In fact, it's an irritation. The idea of tomorrow's meal is a complete irritation. There's nothing attractive about it as an idea. It doesn't do anything for you, does it? It just makes you maybe hungry. It doesn't do anything pleasant. Whereas tomorrow's meal, the reality of tomorrow's meal, we all know what that's going to be like. Like today's and like yesterday's, you know, exceedingly pleasant and agreeable. Now, the thing is to realize these are different realities. We forget this. And one day it's terribly obvious, but... Because we forget it, we create a lot of problems in our lives. The idea of something and the thing are completely different realities. And just to remember that. There's nothing wrong with having fantasies or ideas about the retreat ending or what's going to happen, so long as we don't invest anything more than is suitable on those ideas. Yeah. Now, when we talk about here and now, Often people will say, well, you know, you talk about here and now, you can't plan for the future. That's not at all what we're saying. I mean, one of the wonderful things as human beings we can do, we can remember the past and then with these wonderful minds that we have, we can extrapolate into the future and we can learn and we can predict and we can plan. However, it becomes a problem when it becomes compulsive and it's not based on their seeing or right understanding. We think that these fantasies that we have about the future are something substantial, something more than that. They're images, like the memories we have of the past. The images, whatever has happened in the past, is gone. It's absolutely, completely dead. But there are these images that we retain, which are alive. But the images, they're not the same thing as that which we remember. So, although, yes, the, the, the encouragement to train our minds to really use our thinking to you know, conceptually think of the past. The past is the name we give to that functioning of our mind, that memory, and in the future, that functioning of the mind. And then here and now, it is this thinking, you know, this is, this is, but it's skillful thinking, it's skillful thinking. It helps us bring attention to this experience. And in the context of, of that awareness, well, then there's all sorts of, well, we, hopefully we've all, we're all familiar with the vitality, the aliveness, the possibility. Yeah. The possibility of being spontaneous, of being creative. That great Australian philosopher, what was her name? Germaine Greer. Yeah. She said, the, the essence of all happiness is spontaneity. She was right. The, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If our lives all believing in the planning and the fantasies, believing in the memories, then it does become very shallow. And uh, so in a retreat situation like this, hopefully all of us have let go to some little increased degree the way we believe in what we call the past and what we call the future and have a renewed, deepened appreciation of this here and now moment and the possibilities that that has not just for spontaneity, creativity, and for happiness, but also for discernment, that you know, consider what happens when we're really investing in memory more than accords with reality. You know, if we still believe in, that these memories we have are something more than movements in consciousness. You know, we, we recreate. We recreate the world, and we're responsible for that. And, and the future, all the fears we have of what if? I mean, it can be so, it can be so agonizing and, and it can be so anxiety-ridden. 
about the future. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know about you, but you know, I, it's just over and over and over again, I've worried about something. They're just really worried, like lost sleep over something. And it's happened so many times that then it turns out to be completely nothing. You know, it's just, it's so humiliating, really, that we keep doing this. Well, it's okay, like Ajahn Abhinando said last night, just because we don't, it doesn't look like we're, you know, dealing with our delusions and we're making progress, well, little by little, you know, uh, it's, this is the way the training, one aspect of the training goes. And, there's another. He, Ajahn Abhinando, gave last night the image of the handle of the, the wooden handle of a, of a tool that uh, that wears down as you use it. And another image the Buddha gave that pertains to this is the the filling of a water jar, is drip by drip. So in one drip, you don't think it makes a difference, but actually a water jar can fill just drip, drip, until you've got a whole jar of water. And uh, and so our accumulated potential for clear seeing. It happens in every moment of remembering. Every moment of remembering. Never ever undervalue the moment of mindfulness. You know, just coming back and you know, this moment, this fantasy that I just got lost in, it's, it's a speculation. Here and now happening speculation and we withdraw the investment. We don't invest our energy in it, don't believe in it, don't disbelieve in it. It's perfectly valid as a fantasy, is just so. So just as a word of, um, kind of you know, encouragement as we begin to approach the last day of the retreat, to, to watch what happens with our fantasies. Do we ascribe more value to them? You know? yeah. Okay, so here we go. We start through this pile. Dear Ajahn, old question, but would to hear it again your views, the Buddhist view on eating meat and fish. Now, this is a very, on one level, it's a very straightforward matter, but on another level, it's a very, uh, very, very complex matter. It's complex because it uh, stirs up the passions, uh, how we feel about it. You know, uh, don't you dare tell me whether I should eat meat or fish or not. You know, or or, yeah, go for it, I didn't really tell these carnivores. You know. <laughs> you know, it depends on where our preferences are, doesn't it? That makes it complicated. The moral side of it is, uh, is pretty straightforward, that uh, the Buddha pointed out that if our actions uh, lead to harming living beings, then, there's a, uh, then it's uh, unskillful. You know, if we... If our actions are leading to harming living beings, then it's unskillful. If it's not leading to harming, then it's not unskillful. So, um, so certainly there's no question about the idea of going out killing animals uh, to eat them. Mm, that's uh, something that will have uh, unfortunate consequences. Um, as to whether somebody else giving it to us or going out and buying it. Well, I, personally, I think a lot of it's got to do with the degree of awareness that we have. Yeah. If you're talking about the karmic implications in the act of buying and eating meat, um, you know, I can't really convince myself that, that my mother's heading for the lower realms because she, you know, she munches on a leg of lamb um, every Saturday night. 
Yeah, I, I just don't, I'm not, not convinced. Now, if she went out killing sheep, I probably would have a word with her about, you know, that's unfortunate. Um, well, I wouldn't put it past her. <laughs> I, just, I just remember that when she came to visit, she got into an argument with the nuns because the, the nuns were putting the argument for vegetarianism. My mother was saying, well, but God put them there for us to eat. <laughs> So, um, now there's the question of views, isn't it? Anyway, um, my own view on it is, I, and I would usually, if people ask me about these things, I say, well, I think, uh, you know, with regards to, you know, awareness, uh, that's our commitment, I think uh, if we're going to eat meat, well, then the best thing to do is to be aware of the whole process, which means going to an abattoir. And I know in my own case that when I went to an abattoir, I think I was about 18 years old, uh, my last year at high school, and uh, I don't want to drag it all up here uh, right now, but uh, just just seeing the animals, you know, that the, they, they know there's the smell of fear in the air and, and, and the conditions they've been kept in and before being slaughtered and then the actual slaughtering process and the people that work there and the effect that has on that town was an abattoir, the people who live in that area. Uh, it left a very strong impression on my mind and uh, personally it's not something that I would want to endorse. Um, so I think you know, as Buddhists it's good for us to uh, bring as much awareness to bear on, 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 on these things as we possibly can. This also includes bringing awareness to bear on our mental processes. And so where, for instance, we have uh, ideas of I'm pure because I don't eat meat. Uh, well, this is something that the, the Buddha was very explicit about, you know, warning against. Yeah. Um, it's not you know, the same with the clothes that you wear. You know, there, there are certain castes in India that will only wear certain clothes and and uh, the Buddha is very clear about you're not you're not pure or anything special because of the clothes you wear or your bloodline or or even the food you eat uh, rather it's whether the heart is pure whether the heart is free from from greed aversion and delusion so in this case also there can be the deluded view of I'm pure because I'm not eating meat and I'm better than these meat eaters and and, and so on. I know myself sometimes I, I purposely eat a bit of meat uh, just to kind of, you know, deal a blow to such views. You know, the idea that I'm pure because I don't eat meat. And, and I do eat some fish. And, and so any views that we have about ourselves are something to also bring awareness to. Or if we start getting uh, preachy to other people, you know, um, well then also to bring awareness to that. And as we bring awareness to it, well, then we're in a position to be able to contemplate it. But essentially, whether it's skillful or unskillful, uh, we need to be looking at where our, you know, the consequence of our action. Is this going to be causing harm to living beings? If, if it's going to be causing harm to living beings, well, then there's a question of being unskillful. So, so anyway, I, I won't say anything more about that. I hope that's something that you can ponder on. If there is no self which the writer believes, then who gets liberated or enlightened? Please give your view. 
my view on that is that you, the questioner, should ask the question, who wants to know? And see where you go with it. So here's another one. Uh, a month ago, a good friend seemed shocked by my answer that I did not, as a Buddhist, believe in God. I explained very thoughtfully, to the best of my ability, please talk on how and what is the right approach, in your opinion. Well, my opinion, sometimes it's quite good to um, shock people. I think, um, you know, we get around assuming all sorts of things about reality and these assumptions, these assumptions have uh, significant, serious consequences. And so, <clears throat> you know, like a few years ago, if you suggested that we shouldn't have slaves, people would have been horrified, right? Or if you suggested that women should be allowed to vote, people would be horrified. Um, and I think the, the same thing with this God belief, really. There are serious consequences to it. In my view, it makes people, it, tends to, it, it can tend to make people irresponsible. You know, the idea that there's an authority out there that is um, taking care of everything. Now, I don't want to you know, sound disparaging or disrespectful of people who, who do believe in, in God, but I don't think we should shy away from holding up another possibility to people. So when I say that I think it's okay to, for people to, you know, be shocked sometimes. Well, I do, because it can, can sometimes just kind of question assumptions. Um, but also, obviously, I'd want to qualify that by saying that uh, you want to choose the time and place uh, with, with saying these things. Um, uh, somebody who's, uh, well, again, I use my mother as an example. You know, my mother's 87 years old and and um, she spent a whole life believing in God. And, and if I was to try and dismantle her belief system, I, I don't think that would be very, uh, very wise or a very kind thing to do. Um, or also, if it's um, if you're working for a, if your boss is a fundamentalist evangelical Christian, <laughs> I would suggest that you you know <laughs> think very seriously about. Uh, challenging his view of God. I mean, there's some practical you know, consequences. So, yeah, I wouldn't just say, yeah, it's good all the time to go around shocking people and challenging their God belief. But on the other hand, I don't think that we, you know, we have to pretend that we believe in God and we don't. You know, sometimes there's a kind of a PC attitude where you've got to make sure everybody is happy and nobody gets upset. And well, I think sometimes that can be, that can be a bit of an abdication on our part, really. And if you've, uh, 
received a bit of information, and you know, you know, it's, you know, you've got a great deal of confidence in it. You've considered it, and you for yourself, and uh, then somebody else starts going on about their God belief, and well, I think it's okay to question it. Again, you know, the time and place is really important. Do you remember there was that incident some years ago when Glenn Hoddle, was that his name, was set up by some newspaper and uh, asked that question about, uh, do you think that people who are crippled in this life are suffering the consequences of their bad karma in the past, previous lives? And Glenn Hoddle said yes. Something like that, was that right? Yeah? Well, then, of course, you know, there was all hell to pay, and he got fired. And then somebody asked the Dalai Lama, um, was Glenn Hoddle right to say that? And the Dalai Lama replied, he was right in what he said, but wrong in when he said it. Yeah. Now, you know, I don't even necessarily think that the Dalai Lama was meaning that he's absolutely right in what he said, that, you know, just because somebody's got some deformity, there's a guaranteed indication that that's a karma consequence. It's, you know, the Buddha said this whole thing with karma is very complicated and sophisticated, and coming up with simplistic answers uh, is not also the answer. But the point there is, is to remember uh, time and place with these things. You know, these views that we hold, are, 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 you know, what we know these days, you're very, you know, it's very obvious. God beliefs uh, have, you know, very deeply held. And, uh, but to not be afraid of um, challenging somebody. Uh, for many of us, we grew up in a situation where uh, the majority of people around us did believe in God. And whether they took it seriously or not, you know, is another matter. But generally, something like that is held to be true. And I've been aware that uh, for many people who pick up the path of, of Buddhist practice, that even though they wouldn't call themselves theists, there can still be something like that hanging around. The idea that there's somebody out there taking care of things. And so I think it's also okay um, in, in terms of this question about how do we approach, you know, questioning the existence of God or telling other people that we, we don't believe in it, to really look into how we feel about it ourselves. Now, sometimes you hear the Buddha's teaching and it seems fine and, and you, you know, you're impressed with it and you go, and you just say, well, I'm a Buddhist. And so you pick up Buddhist belief systems without really investigating how we feel about it. Again, in my own case, I had a very serious indoctrination. There's preachers on every side of the family for generations in every direction. And, you know, I'm a thoroughbred. I have to restrain my, sometimes my evangelical impulses. And I had been a Buddhist monk for many years when I was, I felt like whenever I went into a church, I wanted to throw up. That uh, <laughs> what does that suggest? Time to look at it. How do I feel about Jesus anyway? How do I feel about the church? How do I feel about you know God? Do I really believe as a God or do I not believe as a God? And one thing I discovered was that I had a lot of uh, a lot of resentment for 
one thing was being indoctrinated that I really I really resented being told about reality and I, nobody ever asked my opinion on reality and I, nobody ever asked how I felt about reality and I was just told and then told me, just believe and shut up and don't be a nuisance stop asking questions and so I had a lot of resentment about that and then of course there's the guilt thing you know that comes with um, the particular breed of, of Christianity that, that, that has been promoted over the last few centuries in our culture that there's something virtuous about hating ourselves for being bad. Yeah, that was interesting to realize that that uh, that what guilt is is not it's not just an idea, but it's a it's it's a feeling. You, well, obviously, you can investigate it for yourselves. But there's passion in there. That's why it drives us. Uh, or can drive us to such despair. There's a lot of energy in there. And, and what I discovered was that actually it was parading as a virtue. That I feel good if I condemn myself for being bad. Now, we all make mistakes. You know, we all say things and, that are unkind or heedless or slightly deceitful or whatever. Or we maybe do things that... You kind of fall short of impeccability from time to time. And then if you had this kind of conditioning, then afterwards you feel guilty about it. And yeah, somebody rang me just recently, riddled with guilt over the most unbelievable little thing that they had said. Somebody had asked them a question and they had replied just so, so slightly deviously, and they were riddled with guilt. You know, just see, how does it feel when we feel guilty? Not just assume, like sometimes one can assume that feeling guilty is, is so unreasonable and irrational that we just bypass it. I did that for years and behaved in all sorts of frivolous ways. You know, but guilt is really based on something very wholesome. A sense of well, what in Pali is called Hiriotapa, which the Buddha referred to as protector of the world, the protectors of the world. Hiri is translated as sense of shame, but uh, that's difficult. That word is difficult for us, so you know we, we shy away from it. The Buddha talked about it as being a protector of the world. It's pretty important. Uh, so another way of translating it could be a commitment to impeccability. That's how I tend to think of it. Yeah. But it is it is something that that when we behave in ways that are intentionally harmful, that there's something comes up within us and alerts us, like a sense of conscience, and this protects us. Yeah. And the other one, otapa, is fear of blame, which again, we don't like the sound of that very much, but it is a functioning of our minds which protects us uh, these, 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 these aspects of our mind protect us from doing things that are too unskillful. So this is, these things are actually wholesome in consciousness. But a distorted religious system can pick them up and turn them around and then, in fact, abuse these tendencies, these, these natural wholesome protective tendencies. And so that's where guilt comes from, yeah that, uh, yes, when we do something unskillful, yes, we're supposed to feel bad. That's right. You know, if, uh, 
if Nyana Maoli comes in in the morning with my breakfast tray and I didn't sleep very well for some reason or I stomach upset and I'm in a bad mood and, and you know, he's two minutes late and I just shout at him and you should treat me with more respect and be here on time. What is that? I mean, that's not very good, is it? That's pretty inappropriate. So, um, but uh, these things happen. <laughs> no, no, actually, it never happens. <laughs> it never happens that bad. <laughs> now, we all make mistakes. Now, we're supposed to feel bad when we do something inappropriate. If I did that to him, which I've never done and I'm not going to do, you know, if I did it, I was supposed to feel bad. That's, that's appropriate to feel. I'm not supposed to feel great, am I? But what's the difference between simply feeling bad and then feeling guilty? What's the difference? I think that for me, what it seems to me, what the difference is, is the feeling bad is like an organismic message. It's like something that's saying, that's unskillful, that's inappropriate. Just the same as if I stub my toe, I, my toe hurts, well, because I'm supposed to look at it and realize that it's bleeding and do something about it so it doesn't get infected. That's what the pain is there for. Well, likewise, when we do something unskillful, we're supposed to feel bad, but we're not supposed to grasp at it and become bad. Yeah? Rather, it's a message that's supposed to alert us to where we've, we've missed the mark, we've gone off. And then we learn uh, if we pay the proper attention. So my own investigation on this area of um, all to do with my own early Christian uh, particular type of uh, indoctrination was that when I would do something unskillful and I would feel bad, then I would start to get off on playing God. Now, what does God do? God condemns sinners. You know, if you're bad, you go to hell. That's what I was taught. If you're evil, then you, you know, you're bad. You do something bad, you're evil, you go to hell. And so that's what God does. God condemns sinners. And so if you're virtuous, you play God, and so you condemn yourself. That's a really good thing to see. And from that point onwards, when you feel guilty, you can feel guiltiness without becoming guilty. Sometimes the experience of hurt and pain, you know, there's a whole history of it. It starts on early enough in life and you feel guilty about all sorts of things. And so it becomes, you know, it's irrational and so you deny it. So you can push this guilt underground and, and then when any energy is denied, what happens? It either comes out in some form of excess, so you feel guilty all the time. Or your guilt starts coming out in perverted ways. You feel guilty about even beautiful things, like even feeling pleasure. You know, people feel guilty about happiness. Uh, I've had this uh, people, Buddhists, meditating come and tell me that they, they have trouble dealing with happiness. Uh, they feel something's going to go wrong. I feel threatened by it. So anyway, as an investigation of one's uh, particular religious conditioning, uh, I think we need to bring awareness to all of it, the whole thing, not just to, uh, for instance, grasp at new Buddhist beliefs. Yeah, just because Buddhism doesn't teach that there are gods that are going to save us and believe, it doesn't mean to say that, that uh, we say, I don't believe in God. The same thing with a soul. is The idea of a soul that, that Christians believe in and 
and the soul gets saved and goes to heaven or goes to hell, something like that. Or the Hindus believe in it, the transmigration of souls, one life to another. And then sometimes Buddhists will say, well, we don't believe in soul, we believe in anatta. There's no soul. But are we sure we really don't believe in a soul? You know, some substantial abiding entity, some essential meanness. It's my experience that uh, a lot of Buddhists do still believe in something like a soul. And uh, simply because we haven't really stopped to investigate it. So, and then this is not really what this question was about, but I still think it's helpful to, to bear in mind that um, when we're talking about our God belief, whether it's um, yeah, because somebody challenges us or just because you know somebody else is going on about it or uh, it's around us, then... Uh, I think before we say too much, then it's good for us to really investigate our God belief. I know, as I started off by saying, personally, uh, I'd been a, a Buddhist for many years and until I realized that I hadn't really let go. It's like a kind of like a, a connection with, with the church. So when I looked into it and started to untangle some of the knots, uh, I got to a point where I felt, well, I really do, I really do believe that the Buddhist teaching is best. You know, that's what my belief is. Yeah, I mean, if Christianity works for you, fine. I'm not going to insult you, or if you know you're a Muslim or a Jew. And, but personally, I basically believe Buddhism's best. That's my feeling, and and it was a kind of a relief to admit it. Because I was slightly, silently feeling guilty about it. I sort of think I should think everybody's all equal. And, and then when I looked at it a bit further, I thought, well, really the truth is I don't know which is best for everybody. That's the truth. But my feeling is that this is best for me. It's like with food. Uh, some people like food from Morocco. Some people like food from India. Some people, I like food from Japan. And I really do like Japanese food. It just agrees with me. And if I spent the rest of my life eating Japanese food, I wouldn't mind. But I don't feel the need to go around convincing everybody else to eat Japanese food. If somebody else wants to eat poppadom and dal, that's fine. Yeah. So uh, getting to the point where there's a little bit more equanimity about these things, I think is a, a good idea. And for me, it got to the point where I decided to invent a ritual. And, and, f and you know, okay, so I've been a Buddhist monk for, I don't know how many years at the time, 13 years or something at the time, and getting around with a robe on and saying Budhang Sang Gachami and all this. And, but really, I hadn't actually really left the church. And so I thought, well, I'll invent a ritual and I'll, I'll stop being a Christian and I'll formally take leave of the church. And so I did. I invented this little ritual and, and so um, I uh, bowed down in front of the shrine. And, and what I found able to do and, and felt very good about was I was able to express gratitude for what I'd got from the church because there was a lot that came from the Christian upbringing it was really helpful I was really pleased about it at that point um, because I had so much unfinished stuff going around guilt and resentment and so on I couldn't even see the good bits couldn't feel grateful to my parents for the moral example that they'd set me and, and, and the generosity and kindness that I'd been taught and shown and so on. 
So in this little ritual, I was able to express my gratitude for what I'd obtained and received from the church, but also quite clear about the fact that I was taking leave from the church and saying, okay, this is it, thank you very much, and I, I close my relationship with the, with the Christian tradition and align myself with the Buddhist tradition. And it felt really good, it felt really genuine. And so the reason I'm mentioning this is because I don't think this is totally unique, I don't think it's even rare amongst Buddhists that, that we've never really looked into our early life conditioning around these things and brought it to a completion. And that's a pity, because there can be lingering resentments and, and bitterness and so on. And also there can be a certain degree of, of um, closeness, like sometimes it comes up in conversation uh, with people, the issue of prayer, because there's a, a chapter that went into the book of my talks, Unexpected Freedom, I forget what the chapter is called, Prayerful Practice or something maybe, something like that. And it actually talks about the place of prayer and practice. And sometimes people are puzzled by this. They think, you know, Buddhists don't pray. That's something you've got to believe in a God before you can pray. Well, you know, if you go to traditional Buddhist countries, you see, I don't just mean the superficial attitude that some Buddhists have but even you know the, the toughest most committed monks and nuns you know, living off in the forest you know with their dedicated meditation practice still making these uh, statements or gestures that are very akin to prayer and the word that they use is this word aditana which we will recognize from the list of the ten parameters as determination. And it's interesting, I noticed when I was in Thailand, that uh, the Christians, when they teach about Christian prayer, they use the same word, aditana. And what it is, is it's a way of speaking samadhi. Normally we think of samadhi as the mind going silent and still. But there is also a way of bringing our heart and mind and body together and being very still and very focused and giving voice to that. You know, giving that a voice. And this is how I understand what we're really supposed to be doing when we do the practice of loving kindness or the dedication of punya in the evening. What is it we say? Through the goodness that arises from my practice... May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue uh, go through the whole of that. May all beings be free from suffering. By the virtue of my practice, may I be protected from evil. So, wow, you know, I mean, if you superimpose some sort of external authority figure on that, you could start sounding like you're praying, couldn't you? Well, it might sound like prayer, but it depends entirely on our view. And what I discovered was that when we've really dealt with our early life conditioning about there being an external authority, about somebody having else, somebody else out there having to save us and take care of us and so on, when we've really dealt with that, well, then we don't have to be afraid to engage in this spiritual activity. And it can have a very profound effect because there are things that we feel very deeply about you know, deep longings like, and deep concerns like 
uh, like for instance being on a retreat here uh, I'm sure everybody's been working you know, people not been here having a holiday people been making effort and, and good effort wholesome effort skillful effort and then uh, tomorrow's our last day and then Saturday we clean up and then you go back out again and, and for a lot of people there's some concern say so, well what's going to happen to this good energy that's been generated this mindfulness this crispness this aliveness this, this, this increased clarity and and the fear that it's going to be dissipated. I think it's perfectly valid to, in our meditation or as a ritual, you know, you bow down in front of the shrine, <clears throat> and in so doing, we we're disciplining our body in front of that which symbolizes uh, perfect wisdom and compassion, right? And then to bring into consciousness the wish, the conscious wish, yeah, may the force of my practice generated through my effort this week protect me from losing mindfulness or protect me from falling into unskillfulness or may the force of my practice guide me in the direction with which my heart is most deeply aligned now these are just some thoughts coming to my mind there but in other words you know to to really listen to what our heart wants to say and with a very clear, unapologetic, conscious, giving voice to it. I would say that uh, for a lot of Buddhist meditators, this is uh, an element that's really missing, sadly. Sadly missing. And we don't include the heart in it. We care about these things. I mean, you know, we, we really care. We're putting a whole week aside to make this effort. And, and the world is a pretty painful place and... and, and the, the rate at which it's spinning out of control, it's not, it's not looking beautiful. The, you know, the freedom that, that we, we have now, that we enjoy, that's so wonderful, that people have sacrificed a lot for, is really being questioned right now and is under threat right now. And it'd be uh, really sad to lose it. And we care about that. Well, I think that uh, there is a place for generating the conscious wish that may... the goodness that we have not be lost. Like, you know, when we do in the, in the, the, uh, the chant reflection on the four Brahma Viharas, may beings not be parted from the good fortune that they have attained. Now, what is that? Uh, that's prayer. You know, that's, a, that's not just a kind of a, just a sort of a kind of a, a thing that we say. If we say it with feeling, may beings not be parted from the good fortune that they have attained. I believe, personally, I believe that generates a, a force that sends, that sends something out. And there, even these days, those who have such minds, there, there are these days uh, you know, people in the scientific field who are also investigating uh, this side of things, and there is some evidence. You know, even people now are able to even um, uh, quantify the, the, these, these, uh, these things. And, um, and even the commercial world is paying attention to it. And apparently in California... If you can prove to your insurance company that somebody's going to pray for you when you get sick, you get a lower premium rate. This is, uh, I read this report, it's, uh, I believe it's true. And if you can prove, give evidence that people will pray for you, then you get a cheaper deal. Uh, so it's even commercially beneficial, not just psychically beneficial. There's even some money involved. Anyway, the point I wanted to make in, in raising this was uh, that uh, in my own life, I found this a, a, a great source of, of strength. Yeah. And, but it wasn't accessible so long as 
that particular inner space was cluttered up with old conditioning. Uh, old conditioning that I was too afraid to look at. Uh, I yeah, basically felt, you know, like felt guilty about leaving the church. That uh, I remember, I can still remember my grandmother towering down at me, saying, Keith, you promise your grandmother you will never get involved with those evil religions. And my mother once saying to me, when I went home as a monk, she said, thank goodness your grandmother didn't live to see you now. (laughs) Anyway, that moral intimidation, that kind of stuff, that to varying degrees, you know, even if we didn't have a a really serious uh, evangelical fundamentalist conditioning like, like I've had, it's still all around us. And, you know, to engage in, in this path of practice, it means it's good to investigate that, you know, because religious intolerance, you know, where we're basically judgmental and critical of others, can also come from that kind of area. So, anyway, before we uh, challenge somebody on their their belief in God, well, I think it's also good for us to to look at our own beliefs. And, and these days, when the Jehovah's Witness and the Seventh Day Adventists and people come to the door, I want to meet them. Yeah, I like to meet them because I, I, it's a good test. You know, a lot of people get very irritated when somebody comes to the door and starts trying to put their stuff on you. Or the Mormons. We, I've got a great relationship with some Mormons in Newcastle. I, I like to go there. They, they fix our computer for us, and uh, I really enjoy spending time with them. Uh, but it often gets to the point, still, where something really feels challenged. And what do we do at that point? Well, that's basically where I'm still holding on to something. So even the fact that I do believe that Buddhism is best, which I do, if I'm holding on to that, that's still a false relationship. And that needs to be examined. So I think probably this last question, which is another academic proliferation, I will leave for Abhinando. (laughs) <laughs> I, will, I will address it tomorrow so uh, thank you very much this evening for your attention <coughs>